I'm Andrew Blumenfeld, and you're listening to the Money in Politics podcast. How do you build a donor network? This is among the top questions I hear from candidates and campaigns, and it's something we've discussed on this podcast before. We know raising money is critical to a credible campaign, and we know that means you have to ask people for money, but who do you ask? How do you know who to reach out to? How do you get their contact info? There are a lot of approaches to answering these questions, but today I'm speaking with someone who offers campaigns a relatively straightforward answer to all of them. They'll sell you that information. Sarah Elizabeth Pohl is the director of marketing for a data firm called Grassroots Analytics, which sells donor data to left-leaning campaigns. But does it work? What's the best way to leverage this data? Does this mean candidates don't have to build their own networks organically? These are just some of the questions I'm looking forward to digging into with her today. But first, a quick message from Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, CallTime AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy-to-use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. So I'm here now with Sarah Elizabeth Pohl. Thank you so much, Sarah Elizabeth, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you found yourself in politics? I know that hasn't actually been a lifelong career of yours. So how did you find yourself in the political space? Yeah, absolutely. So my background was really in advertising and marketing with a heavy focus on both writing and project management. But I always had this like fangirl mentality, so to speak for politics. And then after 2016, like so many others, was just exceptionally motivated to get involved at some level. Things kind of just unfolded very naturally and perfectly for me to join Grassroots. I joined when it was really in its infancy. I was the first marketing person to join the company and kind of got the opportunity to build out different aspects of the marketing role within grassroots and seeing how that has developed as the company has developed has been everything I could have imagined and more. And for those that don't know, tell us a little bit about grassroots analytics. What's the main objective of this company? Absolutely. So kind of in short, grassroots is a progressive data firm that works with candidates and organizations on the left to match them with their best donors. So what that means is different for everybody. That could be demographics-based. It could be based on what drives that person as a donor. Are they driven by climate change? Are they driven by African-American candidates, red to blue candidates? All of these different aspects, we put candidates and organizations in touch just via the data, right? We don't do any of the outreach ourselves. But we provide the data and then let the campaigns and organizations take it from there. And that is, you know, kind of as their strategy sees fit, right? So whether that's heavier on call time, heavier on digital, we are just putting the tools in their hands for them to then take that and run with it. And has this evolved at all since you've been with the company or has that kind of been the the objective since the beginning? The objective started as call time. So this really was all started in a call time room on a congressional campaign. Our director was working as a finance assistant, 
and felt like there were ways that the process could be improved. So that's how it all started, was bettering call time. But as we progressed and gathered more data on the call time side, naturally we were getting emails associated with these people. We were finding social profiles associated with them, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. And so that just grew and grew and grew. And so these donor profiles became even more robust with both from a contact info perspective and from variables on what drives them as donors. So it started as call timeless, but has grown since to be heavy on email acquisition, heavy on mobile numbers for texting, uh, as well as running match lists and appends. So you uh, referenced it a bit a moment ago, but let's dive a little bit deeper into how you are helping folks find match. There's obviously a strong analog here in my mind to sales, right? Lead generation companies exist in the sales world all the time to help them find who are their likely prospects. And depending on the industry, there can be a lot of things that go into determining whether or not somebody is a good you know, what they'd call a qualified lead uh, for that particular business to target. How do you go about that? How do you work with campaigns to help qualify these leads to help make sure that the match between the donor that you are providing or the donor data you are providing to the campaign and the qualities of that campaign are actually a good fit for one another? Basically, on each donor, we have all these different variables like I was talking about. When we start working with a candidate, we will basically build a profile for them that pulls a lot of these same factors, um, you know, their demographics, their platform, how, what they're running on, their district, all of these different, you know, factors. So in our database, we have all these different variables, like I was talking about on donors. What we do with candidates is we build a similar profile for them based on their demographics, their platform, what they're running on, their district, And we identify what truly makes a candidate compelling. We run that against our algorithm, which has been developed and tweaked and all these different little tech tools that are honestly more tech related than I than I ever delve into. And then we find the donors that really match based on that algorithm. So we really rank them based on highest likelihood to give down. So each candidate has thousands of people that can potentially match with them. It just depends on how drilled down they want to get. So the higher the likelihood for somebody to give, the more variables are kind of going to cross check with each other. But the more you expand, whether that is by geography, by issue, by demographic, the more donors you have the capability to connect with. That's just how drilled down you want to get and how high the likelihood is going to be. I'm curious about these variables because one of the things that I've noticed in working with candidates and campaigns, especially when it comes to trying to identify potential donors to their campaigns, is that there is sometimes an intuition about what would make for a good match. So the candidate presumes that there's some quality about a donor that would make them likely to want to donate to them, but that you study the data, you don't actually necessarily bear that out, that the pattern and practice of giving of donors maybe sometimes doesn't align with the expectations that the candidate has about what kinds of variables make for the best kinds of donors to them. So I guess uh, I'm curious about 
who is involved in the variable development process. Is the candidate and campaign coming to you and saying, these are all of the things that I'm looking for in a donor? Are you, as the data provider, saying these are all the things that we know indicate whether or not someone is a good donor, and so we're matching them to the things that we know to be true about you? Is it sort of a a conversation between the two? Who's playing what role in deciding what actually makes for a high-quality variable in determining a match? It's really a mix. It depends on the campaign. So how much they have done in terms of campaign development, how many staffers they have, especially on the finance side and like political strategy side. But the way that grassroots is broken up is we're broken up into regional teams. Each regional team consists of a fundraising strategist and a data analyst. So they really have the ability to specialize in not only that region, but then also each fundraising strategist has a specialty, so to speak. So like one of them focuses on red to blue races. One of them focuses on progressive challengers, different aspects like that. But it's really a mix as to whether that's coming from the campaign side or our side. The best campaigns is generally a pretty even split and they really just bounce ideas off of each other all the time. We also have this variable that's very helpful, especially right now, that is high donor momentum. So how often are people saying yes lately? And that is very lucrative, especially right now when people are worried about, you know, donor, like high donor saturation. So people just getting bogged down and tired of donating. So that variable has been very useful, especially late in the cycle. That's something that we developed last cycle. But Generally speaking, it's a mix between our fundraising strategists, our data analysts, and the campaign's finance team. And so you mentioned the idea of kind of donor fatigue. And obviously, again, in the the lead generation world, that is a fairly typical potential problem to run into. And I'm curious, you have this donor momentum score. That sounds like a great tool for kind of seeing who, you know, as I suppose the name implies, it has some momentum behind their giving. What other kind of guardrails or tools do you have in place to help make sure that the the matches are sort of uniquely good to that individual and not necessarily, you know, overly generic in the sense that, you know, we talk to, again, a lot of campaigns, and a lot of candidates. And of course, the they imagine that if they could, like, only get the contact information of, you know, you name the 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 George Soros, the Reed Hoffman, the, you know, you whatever, you know, that then, then they'd be golden, right? If they had that person's phone number, they could get them on the phone, and they, they'd be able to raise money from them. But of course, that overlooks that what we've been spending a lot of time in this conversation talking about the quality of the actual match. Like, is there a good alignment between that person's goals and vision and values for their money and what the goals and visions and values are of the candidate and the campaign? So what are the sorts of efforts that you take or the steps that you take to help campaigns make sure that they are actually sourcing leads that are uniquely good matches to them and not necessarily just people who are themselves prolific donors and and sort of likely to give to Democrats generically? This is a question that we get a fair amount, especially at this point in the cycle. A lot of the time, the way that we prevent donor fatigue popping up on lists is we pull unique identifiers from each candidate and there is not that much crossover. So our database is almost 17 million people across the country. 
there are only a certain number that are going to have X, Y, and Z as likelihood, you know, reasons to give to certain candidates. There are always going to be donors who give to moderate Dems, give to, you know, progressive Dems, house challengers. But we have data that shows these people are likely to give to state and local candidates. These people are more likely to give to house candidates. So state and local candidates aren't often having to compete with people in district or in the state who are giving to house challengers because we just find these different unique identifiers and combine them. So it's really the combination of the variables that helps prevent donor fatigue rather than just, here's a list of people in your district who give to Democrats. That's obviously helpful, but those people do get tired. So, And then sort of on the flip side of that, what are the mechanisms that you're using to track performance, you know, for these for these lists, for the relationships? Do you have a sense, for instance, if someone is put on a donor list that you sell to a campaign, you know, we'll go back into the 2018 cycle, fast forward to today, do you have a sense, does that donor still give? Has, you know, on this question of donor fatigue, have they sort of now kind of petered out because they surfaced as this donor and and then became kind of chased by a bunch of candidates, whether or not you surfaced them as the lead or not? Yeah. What are sort of the tools, I guess, I'm asking about how you measure your success, not just for individual campaigns, but also as part of the the movement of of progressive candidates who need to raise money, not just this cycle, but obviously for many cycles to come. We receive feedback from campaigns we work with, and then there is the occasional donor that will reach out and say, please take me off your list. But in the two and a half years I've been at Grassroots, I can literally count on one hand the number of times that's happened. I think that the feedback we get from campaigns and the acquisition we do on our own during and after cycles and during and after campaigns helps us understand the mentality of the donor, the likelihood they are to give now, to continue giving, or what their history has looked like, as well as just, you know, like I was saying, the feedback from campaigns, you know, they they are on the ground with these people. They are talking to these people. They can give us feedback on validity of numbers, what the donor sounds like, whether this specific list worked well or not. The more communicative the campaign, the better our services overall. And it's uh, it makes me think of just the notion of lead generation that campaigns are doing themselves as well. And so actually, let's take a step back and talk about that for a minute, because I'm curious about your thoughts. What amount of work do you think is kind of optimal for a campaign to have done on sourcing their own leads on building their own network prior to coming to you? Or is it is that not a factor? Is are they going to be just as successful in kind of maximizing the leads you generate if they've, you know, if they're starting from scratch as if they are kind of have already exhausted their own personal network and then they come to you after that and you're able to look back and see who they've had success with in the past. What uh, stage in the process is best for campaigns to come to you in sort of the overall donor network development process? The best time, generally speaking, for campaigns to come to us is after they have exhausted their personal network. That being said, we run quite a few match lists. So let's say somebody went to Harvard Law, they have their 
alumni list, we can run that against our system. Even if they have reached out to half of those people and maxed out half of those people, we can tell them the other half and what their likelihood to give is. Some campaigns start with us, you know, day one of filing or before filing even. Some people, you know, specifically Corey Bush just had a huge win last night. She started with us in March of 2019. So she obviously ran in 2018. She had a donor network, but we were able to expand where she could go right off the bat. Other people, we will still be signing people and providing data to them in September of this year who are running for election in November. So it really depends on the strategy of each campaign. I would say the majority of people probably sign the first half of the election year when they have used donors they already had based on you know running it back for a second time or a third time. Their personal network or just people that they know, friends of friends, then expanding from there. I would say that is generally what happens, but it really is all about the strategy of the campaign. Some people are really focused on digital and for them, it might be more beneficial to work with us toward the end of their campaign because they already have this massive database of emails that they can reach out to so we can help them onboard more emails than they would earlier in the cycle. We always think it's better to start with us earlier in the cycle because you just get more data that way and you find out information on people that you already have. Like resolicits are a huge thing that we do, especially you know this late in the game. We say, all right, John Smith has given you $500 two times. We know that he has the capacity to give you $1,700 more, whereas you might not have known that otherwise. You might have just thought he was a $1,000 donor. And what does that, I mean, for people who are less familiar with like the call time room and what the actual experience of fundraising is, you know, can you explain what, obviously it's different campaign to campaign, but generally sort of grassroots analytics view of the world, when you hand over a call time list, we'll leave, we'll start with that. You know, I think it's a little more straightforward with an email list. You know, presumably if you hand someone an email list, you know that their next step is to email those people. Okay. That's pretty straightforward for call time people. Is your vision as a company, do you imagine your place in this process that a candidate is calling through a list that you have given them and they have no sort of personal connection or relationship to these people? They're entirely brought to them by you. What does that look like? Are they getting on the phone and saying, hey, you know, I know you don't know me, but... I know this, this, and this about you because I bought this data point on you. I mean, obviously, there's a level of tact that has to go into that. But I'm just curious, since this is your line of work, you must have some perspective on what it is that campaigns do with the data when it's completely cold to them to start and how you help them turn it from cold to warm. Definitely. That's one reason that finding those unique connections between candidate and donor is so important because really, these are cold calls. So a lot of the time, people can say, hey, I see you're a female under 40, I'm a female under 40. And we know that that is a connection point. We provide data so that people can literally just print out a sheet to have in the call time room. 
and go through the sheet, say, I see that this person donated to, you know, X, Y, and Z. Here is how I as a candidate am like these other candidates, or here is how I'm like you or both, and then run with it that way. Two examples that I think are really neat in this space is Joe Cunningham last cycle wanted to connect with people and he had really already reached out to almost everyone in his district. He was, you know, doing great. He's a great fundraiser. He wanted to connect with people who did yoga and liked craft beer because his wife is a yoga instructor and Joe loves craft beer. So we were able to get him lists of people that were yoga instructors, were yoga studio owners, were brewers, own breweries, all these different things. And he really connected with them on a personal level. So it's providing these instances where people can connect with donors on a personal level because that's what constituents want, right? In their representation is people that are like them or that they can connect with. And then another example was Abby Finkenauer was at the Des Moines Women's March, reached out to us and said, hey, I spoke at the Des Moines Women's March. I want to contact every single woman who was there. So we were able to get her a list off of the Facebook event and she was able to call them and say, hey, I know you don't know me, but I was also at this event. Here's how we can connect to make Iowa better. So it's really very dependent on each candidate, each staff member to make those calls feel warm, even though they're technically cold. But we think that we're giving them the tools to be able to do that, at least at a base level, where they know what makes this person who they are, both on a campaign level and hopefully on a personal level. You know, if you're an attorney running for office, we can give you a list of attorneys and you know, you know that those attorneys are attorneys in the social justice field versus attorneys in fraud. So different different aspects, different occupations, all really all these different data points that help make us who we are. And it feels a little cold to think about us being made up as data points, but you know, it's true. And I'm curious now, just because those examples are so interesting, and I agree, really, really innovative. It makes me curious, though, about just a little bit more of the practical side of it. How then do you go about, once you've identified yoga, that being an owner of a yoga studio is important, sort of, do you ha- how do you go about finding not only yoga studio owners, but yoga studio owners that have other qualities that might make them a good match? Or in these examples, are, are you sort of stripping out that second piece in it and you're really just looking for yoga in- you know, instructors or, or yoga studio owners and you're not so concerned with the other qualities that, might go, that you might usually use to decide if someone is actually a good donor? In specific instances like these, it is primarily somebody who is a yoga instructor or studio owner and is a democratic donor. So that second piece, unless it's a match list, that second piece is always part of the puzzle is, is a democratic donor. The other aspects, if it's a special one-off list of yoga instructors of craft beer brewers, that is less about the other data points and more about democratic donors that also fit this mold. And I probably should have asked that at the outset, but that, that, and it's a good point, right? As a baseline and sort of as your backdrop, you're starting from a universe of people who 
are already donors to other Democrats, right? That is sort of a, a starting point. And then from there, kind of drilling down beyond that. Or that is that generally safe to say, other than, of course, like you said, the match, the match lists you do. Exactly. Everything, for the most part, I guess I can put a little asterisk by that. Sure. sure Everyone yeah. is a Democratic donor. So it's not even an exception to the rule. But, you know, for example, we were working with a candidate in Alabama and we sent him a list. I think it was one of the first lists we sent him. And he said, this person is not a Democrat. Like, I know this person. They ran for office as a Republican. They're not a Democrat. That happens. But what happened was that that person had given to a few Democrats, probably friends of his that had run locally. So we have 99.9% of our data is Democratic donors. Some of those donors are new Democratic donors. They were Republicans that have trended Democrat in the last four years, as many have. And that is something we know. We know that they're more moderate. We know that they trend Democrat. And that's, a, that's just another variable that we have. And this is just for, again, those that are a little less familiar, I think a lot of people listening understand the landscape here. But this, and hopefully if you're a donor, you know this, is public record, correct? Right? The fact that someone right. is a Democratic donor becomes a public record when it's filed with the campaign. And so that's, that's, not, that's not a mystery, assuming you've hit the giving threshold, you know, for, for, exactly. for those that, that don't understand, right? So that, that's, that's the starting point. And so, and again, just to kind of find point on it, you're just looking at these Democratic donors that have made themselves known through public record. And then you are building these profiles around them, building these profiles for candidates and seeing who matches, right? Just kind of kind of playing matchmaker using the candidate on the one hand and sort of whatever, you know, donor data you have on them in the other. Is that kind of the, the right way to summarize it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a great way to put it. It's, uh, it's interesting then because you the, the piece of it that I talk to a lot of people on this podcast with and just in my day to day life, it's something I'm, I'm very passionate about is getting new donors into the field. This it sounds like correct me if I'm wrong, but because you're starting from the public record of existing donors, you're not necessarily going to be in the business of sort of sourcing new prospective donors, but that that's kind of the role the campaign could play on the ground with their friends and family and their network. And then you come in and sort of help them find the existing donors, you know, from that public record is, is that right? Or is there any vision or part of the work that does help sort of potentially find someone out there who actually would be a great donor. I'm kind of thinking an analog here is voter, right? Someone who maybe hasn't voted in the past, but has all the demographic qualities that suggest that if we can get them to vote, they'll vote for us. You know, is, is there anything to that or maybe anything on the horizon for that of trying to find people who you identify as fitting the mold of a potentially good donor? They just haven't yet pulled the trigger and, and become a donor yet. We have some where we'll run matchless. And we don't have them in our system, but we pull, you know, we can help a campaign pull their contact info. This happens more often than not with people that are already warm leads, people that are personal connections, whether that's a Facebook friend or a LinkedIn connection or an alumni base. You know, they say, I want this person's contact info because I know them, even if they don't have donor history. That might entice somebody to donate for the first time. So we definitely provide help, you know, help candidates and campaigns retrieve contact info on people that they may know or have a connection with that hasn't donated before because they already think that's going to be a warm lead. So those are some new donors. We also have new donors that are 
and I use new a little loosely, but new right now. So somebody who's right out of high school, who's very motivated by the current climate, we know that they gave $5 three times to Elizabeth Warren because we've done acquisition on our end that isn't necessarily reported because they don't meet the $200 threshold. So we have newer voters or newer donors than, you know, the $250 Joe Schmo who has donated a few times. So we have more active donors in our repertoire than, than a lot of people. That's great. Well, let me leave with one question here that I think I hear it all the time. I'm, I know you hear it all the time because it's, it's, it's largely why you are all in business. What advice generally would you give to a candidate? And I'll broaden it also to involve potential candidates, because I know I've heard from people who listen to this podcast, and I talk to people all the time, that they're not necessarily candidates now, and they not they don't even necessarily know exactly what race they might run in the future, but it's definitely something on their mind. And one of the big sort of mental hurdles is, how am I going to raise money? And obviously, the very first kind of threshold question on that is, what's my donor network going to look like? How do I now start making inroads towards being ready whenever that day may come when I decide to run for office, that I've got a network that I can tap into and I can start building robustly. So with that kind of persona in mind, and again, I'm sure that persona is not new to you at all. What advice do you give? What advice do you give to someone who's in that position and thinking about what's it going to take for me to have a donor network? Absolutely. It's definitely a question that we get a lot. First and foremost, Early money is really important in determining success. So whether you have the personal network built in or not, find a way to capitalize on the momentum of announcing that you're running and get that early money. Quit your day job, hire a finance staff, and do that before you announce. Really focus on running because that's what your goal is. And you really, really have to devote the time to getting that early money. Field and organization can come later. Focus on the finances, because everything is driven by the finances. As much as, honestly, we wish it wasn't, we realize that that would put us out of work. But we do really wish that campaign finance was was different than it is. You know, that is what it's about right now. So focus, focus, focus on the money and getting that network up to snuff in whatever way you have to. Really sound advice. I think that timing thing is really key and being disciplined about it and not thinking it's something that you can wait until the end to do. And I think to your point, there are parts of the campaign you actually can wait to do later on. And in fact, you probably should wait much longer than you think. You want to dive into some of those other pieces sooner rather than later because they can be more fun. They could be more closely aligned with the reasons you got into the race to begin with. But nevertheless, I think really, really sage advice. So Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you being here. I think what you all do is really interesting, and I'm sure folks listening think that as well. So again, thanks so much. I really appreciated the time. Thank you. Happy to. Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and advice by going to the Call Time AI blog at www.calltime.ai. And follow us on Twitter at Call Time AI. <laughs>